Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 181, Ambivalent Commitment. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find a full catalog of products at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more and see the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. Hello. It's been a good week. Things are things are happening. Things are moving along. And uh, as far as I can tell, you probably can't see any of it because I have been working on coding. Coding and search engine optimization. And oh my good gracious, is that dull. But but it's good. It's good. We're getting more listeners. I'm seeing more traffic to the sites. Things are cooking along. And I'm getting ready for a trip to London, Bath, and Wales. Now, I can't remember if I said it before, but there will be a 2011 trip. I just can't tell you where it's going to be to. What I can tell you is that the next trip is going to be announced on the 2010 trip. So when I get back, I will be able to tell you all about the good fun that we'll be having next fall. So... There will always be more fun here at Craftlit. I also wanted to make sure that anybody in the UK knew that Amy Singer and and Diane, who has set all of this up, and I will be at iKnit in London for a local meetup from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday, October 3rd. Now, for people who want to catch up with us in Cardiff, we will be at the local knitting meetup at Rummers Tavern. Ooh, I hope it's Rummers instead of Rummers. Across the street from Cardiff Castle on Wednesday, October 6th from 7 to 9 p.m. Got it? So if you're in the UK, uh, anywhere actually, and can hop across the channel or drive down or ferry over or fly in. <laughs> That's where we will be. Sunday, October 3rd, 3 to 4 at iKnit, and Wednesday, October 6th from 7 to 9 at Rummer's Tavern. So that's going to be fun. And, you know, as I said before, August was kind of a slow month. Everybody's on vacation. Everybody's getting back into the swing of thing in September. And slowly but surely, you know, the comments are coming back on the show notes and I'm getting emails again. So thank you. Thank you for tuning back in when you had time. It's always kind of weird to watch the statistics kind of start to drop and you think, oh, people aren't like in twain. But um, but that doesn't really match with the emails that I've been getting. And sure enough, in September, the numbers popped back up again. So I hope you're enjoying Twain. I promise you, I promise you, it all pays off in the end. It's really, really, really good. Harsh. Good. Twain good. You know. Ooh, and speaking of hard things that are good, uh, yay for Chopbard. I've heard from many of you that you are, you have gone over, have tuned in, and are enjoying 
blah, 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 uh, Chop Bard with Aaron Ziegler. He's working on the end of Hamlet now and will soon be announcing the next play, which I think he said is going to be a comedy. So that'll give you nice, you know, tragedy, really complex tragedy, and then uh, a comedy in the lineup. And so I was really excited that we were able to send some people his way because he is fabulous, as are so many people. I've just been meeting a lot of really fabulous people. So I do have some links to send your way this week. Uh, a couple of interesting things that have been popping up on the radar. But the first thing I needed to clear up was a comment I made last week where I made, uh, I was talking about the tutoring site that we're starting and I made a comment about a site called cheater.com, C-H-E-A-T-E-R.com. And as is my way, I think I was probably speaking kind of quickly. And quickly, it sounded like tutor.com, T-U-T-O-R.com to one of our listeners who actually works for the tutor.com site and was so upset because she thought, you know, that I was um, casting aspersions uh, on her, her site and wanted me to be sure that I knew that they, they didn't do that. They never write papers for people. They do one-on-one online tutoring, very similar to, to what I'm setting up here. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I set the record straight because I was not talking about her site, which sounds really quite lovely. And uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of these paper mills. Um, you know, I would put links up to the sites, but why bother? Because they're just kind of unpleasant. But if you look up uh, if you Google like essay help or writing help, you will come across a lot of these pages and they make it look like they're going to help you write better. But as you read further and further through their information, you find out that what they're going to do is basically have you upload your assignment sheet and they will write a paper for you and send it to you for a fee. Very different from what tutor.com and writingalife.com are doing. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I cleaned that one up. There's also a link that I am putting up on the web. This is for, I, I cannot honestly remember if I've mentioned the site before, Instructables. There was an article in the New Yorker not long ago, maybe, I don't know, May or June of 2010 this year, um, on a, a guy who was, you know, super genius boy, kind of an MIT wunderkind, and he he started this site called Instructables. And I'm sure many of you have seen this, instructables.com. Well, one thing, I get their email. So I get to see like the best of the fabulous things that people are teaching you how to make. It's all do-it-yourself stuff. And one thing came across my radar this week and I thought, oh my gosh, it is Amy's book, When Autumn Leaves. There is a part in the book, and if you've read the book, you'll know, what we're talking about but there's a part in the book where a jar comes into play and i'm going to put the picture of the jar from instructables up on the website it's not exactly the way she described it in the book but it's kind of cool because it's kind of like you know her book comes to life in this weird do-it-yourself synchronous moment which i kind of dig so that's pretty cool and i'm, I'm putting a link to the instructables and to amy's book and to the picture so that you can see how nifty it looks Oh, and on another uh, Heather Spoke Too Fast moment, um, way back, way back during Persuasion, we had Rachel Heron on the show, and 
she was part, she still is part of an online writing group called Pens Fatals, like Femme Fatal. And I will put a, a link back to that, um, that site just in case, because uh, a listener commented on the, the show notes for that episode that she couldn't find, find, she thought I said pens to towels. So Heather needs to speak more slowly. Uh, for those of you in the New York area, please go visit the J.P. Morgan Library. Through January next year, they will be hosting their Mark Twain exhibit. And I am jealous that you will be able to go. <sighs> so I think that's it. Oh, no, it's not. I forgot. There was something I didn't get a chance to put on last week's show. Um, you may remember uh, one of our listeners, Amy, who had had a yarn company down in New Zealand. Um, she's no longer doing that. She did make it out of the earthquake, so everything is fine. I've been emailing with her. But she is part of a group of guerrilla knit-in publicers. <laughs> to, to put a completely ridiculous but accurate name to them. She and her group have been doing some great uh, guerrilla knitting in public. And I am posting a link to... Uh, to some other pictures, but I'm also uploading one of one of the pictures that they've done. It's an in-progress shot, and uh, and it just looks like a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to knitting in public now. I will have knit on two continents in public in front of God and everyone, and I might even, if I'm feeling up to it, crochet while there. And maybe, maybe I'll bring a little spindle. I'm not sure. I'm trying to pack lightly, although honestly, the spindle I'm thinking of bringing wouldn't take up all that much weight on the plane. Oh, and I also wanted to read you part of a comment um, that Laurel posted when um, last week I was talking about the girls developing too early. She said, uh, from what I've read, it isn't puberty that's occurring, it's breast development. I see a connection between this and weight and fitness. I've never seen a skinny or athletic girl with early breasts. Eating well is not about poverty, although cities do play a huge factor. If you aren't in a city, farmer's markets can be quite inexpensive, which I know, I wish I were. Peas, beans, and rice are still cheap and some of the best foods around. The basic problem is that the stuff we shouldn't eat tastes good, so people prefer it. While I'm not saying we should ignore food safety, some of our worries are like a smoker worrying about the alar on his apples. The poor food choices are the biggest factor in a lot of these problems. Education is a part of it, but food is not an intellectual experience. And I completely agree with her, but I would add, they did a study in New York City a couple of years ago, and they gave kids the choice between low-fat yogurt and non-fat snack wells, the cookies. Uh, an extraordinary number of the kids chose the snack wells. And your knee-jerk, my gut level reaction was, oh my God, they need to be taught about nutrition. When they were asked why they chose the snack wells, they said, well, because that's non-fat and non-fat's better for you. You don't want to eat fat. So even low fat's not good. You see the problem. So definitely education, no question. But, you know, having read Nickled and Dimed, and, and I've heard a couple of things about having to try and shop on, say, food stamps, the healthy food really is expensive for you to buy. Whereas things like Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, not so expensive. And you can get, you know, a couple meals out of it. So, anyway, I wanted to make sure I read uh, Lauren's comment because I thought that was important. And yes, uh, the smoker 
worrying about the LR is kind of our way often here in the States, isn't it? But on to Twain. So today we have chapters 21 and 22. And this is, this is uh, the beginning of when I think you start to see, I mean, you, you've gotten moments of Twain's kind of edginess, the, certainly the way he feels about uh, slavery, modern American uh, slavery, which had just recently ended officially, although not necessarily in any real turn since Reconstruction was kind of a bust. And you, you've certainly heard him about the church. You have also heard him about people who are truly spiritual, not part of a larger structure, just like the, the priest who he was talking about who actually was out among the people, who actually was helping people find solace and comfort and doing good things for him or for, for the, the people around him. Okay, so you've got that picture that Twain's good with that. Well, I, I did a bunch of research and I found, and this, this comes to be important for, for today's episodes, uh, for today's chapters. I found that Mark Twain was influenced by a book called Lecky's History of European Morals. It was one of his, his favorite books. And according to a friend of his, Twain first read it in 1873. Okay. So, this uh, commentary that I found said that it was a minor source for Huck Finn, which makes sense, and a major source for The Prince and the Pauper, which also makes sense, but that his History of England in the 18th Century, this is Lecky's book, it was a huge influence on Connecticut Yankee. So, Twain is drawing on uh, Lecky's historical facts and some of the, the concepts that Lecky brings up. N now, when you think about the the history of European morals, this is going to be kind of interesting. And he he's doing this massive. Lecky is doing this massive sweep from um, Augustus to Charlemagne. Just to put that into perspective, and he it's it's very interesting because he's uh, you can really see. I'm going to read you a small passage. You can really see where Twain found a kindred spirit. And you can also see how, if you take Tennyson and Sir Walter Scott and Mallory and all of these kind of romantic visions of the time that came before, kind of the way people who aren't really paying attention look at the TV show Mad Men and go, oh yeah, gosh, things were simpler then and things were easier then. And well, you know, the top income earners were taxed at 91% back then. And that was an Eisenhower thing. And, and both men and women were constrained in their roles in society. And everybody's drinking too much and smoking too much. So the nostalgia thing, it's, it, this is where Twain was going. It's a little dangerous to look back and say, oh, if only. I mean, certainly there were things about my childhood that I look back on and I wish I could give to my kids. You know, I was able to ride my bike anywhere. I was able to go out and play until it got dark and then come in. And I know that I'm not alone in this, but, um, you know, we have a bigger world that is less connected physically. I mean, on the internet, we're actually a very strong community in lots of different um, genres and areas, but, you know, Physically, 
when I lived in Croton, a town of a couple thousand people, um, you kind of knew everybody and your kids could go out and play like that. Here in Tucson, we're all spread out. And even though we have a friendly neighborhood, we don't have a close-knit neighborhood. I don't know all of my neighbors. And that's a very different world. And certainly as the population continues to expand, that problem is also going to continue. Um, you know, sometimes I look at my husband and say, you know, it was easier for a playwright to get noticed in 1960 because there were millions fewer people competing to be seen. And it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to remember that sometimes. So when, when, when Twain goes after these people like Sir Walter Scott and Tennyson and looking back at Mallory and saying, oh, if only we could be chivalrous once again, I think he really felt compelled to say, no, 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 keep your mind in now. The problems that we have now are the ones that we need to fix. And, and, and looking back and saying, oh, those were the days, if only, you know, oh, look at how wonderful it was then, that that's the trap you get into. And if you keep looking back instead of looking forward, you, you wind up making the same mistakes over and over again. Connecticut Yankee is, is part of his way of trying to refocus the argument on what's real. However, Twain's genius, I think, is in what you're going to start noticing is his growing ambivalence. So far, he's been presenting the boss as you know, the guy who's, who's helping everybody out. He's, um, he's come up with all these solutions. He's saving people's lives. He's rescuing people from jail. But he's also doing things like putting sandwich boards on the nights and having them sell soap. And although that's very funny, and it's a very funny image, that should be starting to make you uncomfortable. One of the things that my, my husband has said he loves most about Twain is that Twain, because he is so uh, clear thinking, you know, he's got this laser vision when he, when he looks at reality and he's critical of, of reality. Um, he doesn't leave you a whole lot of ground to stand on when he's done with his argument. And you are going to watch as we continue from this point on that if, um, do you remember that game that came out in the 70s? It was like a, a plastic, or maybe a blue or red plastic frame that had ice cubes in it. And you had some little figure that you placed somewhere on the ice cubes. They were plastic ice cubes. And I think it was called Don't Break the Ice. And you had little tiny mallets and you would tap out the ice cubes until uh, whoever tapped out the ice cube that made the figure fall down lost. This is precisely what Twain is going to do to us for the rest of the novel. He is going to start chipping away. He's already started, but now it really kicks in. He's going to be chipping away at everything you think you know about today, or at least his 1886 today. And of course, there are lots of similarities between what he's attacking then and what he's attacking now. So, so back to Lecky. So, to, oh, well, first off, the reason that I found all this stuff on Lecky is because there is a note in the chapter 22 where um, it's a footnote that says all the details concerning the hermits in this chapter, and you're going to hear about a bunch of hermits, are from Lecky, but greatly modified. And, of course, one of the modifications that uh, Lecky's hermits or ascetics were from Egypt. 
or the, the Middle East, and Twain has moved them to Arthurian England. So that's completely apocryphal, and Twain knows that. But what he what he's trying to do is, again, make you think about certain aspects of religion. Now, in this section, he is not critical of the hermits. It's very interesting. In fact, he's, he's very kind towards the hermits until the boss's 18th century morals kick in. Because he, you know, the, the boss comes to the 6th century with his own value system. And of course, he feels that his value system is superior. And people who aren't paying attention will think that, therefore, Twain thinks that the boss's value system is superior. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Remember that he said that the boss is a jackass. And this is one of the places where you're going to see it really clearly. Now, another thing. Lecky. Lecky talks about uh, the natural history of morals. And of course, he's going to see a narrative written. This is written in 1869. He's going to see a narrative that leads to his time period and sees his time period as a superior one. This is, you know, the, the flaw that people have argued about for decades now about um, the victors writing the history and historians seeing everything from a whatever-centric vision, a male-centric or a Eurocentric or an American-centric or whatever. And, and this is no different. You know, everybody brings their biases and you don't even notice that they're, they're your biases. You have probably heard biases in my voice that I didn't know were there. Um, and sometimes you've pointed them out and it's good. It's good when you do that. I like that. But um, Lucky... Lecky said the seventh century, where the, the I'm sorry, the sixth century where the Connecticut Yankee is set, is the darkest. This is a quote: the darkest period of the Dark Ages. Now we've already talked about how Dark Ages is a misnomer, and it really wasn't what people tend to think it is. But again, this was written in 1869. He repeatedly, this is Lecky, condemns the superstitious torpor and the blind credulity of medieval religion. So Twain found something that he was already believing and he found um, you know somebody who agreed with him in this book for example when lecky contrasted the roman ideals of self-reliance and independence with the cardinal or rudimentary virtues in the christian character humility obedience gentleness patience resignation mark twain wrote in the margin of his copy of european morals quote christianity then did not raise up the slave but degraded all conditions of men to the slave's level and later you'll hear a Connecticut Yankee, our boss, say, quote, an established church is an established slave pen. Okay? Now, both of them find that the kind of American industrial can-do spirit, that that is what will raise you up out of poverty. However, this is where Twain is so interesting. You could easily just say, oh, well, that's, you know, capitalism, but it's, it's not. Because, you know, pure capitalism, at least in, in my understanding, pure capitalism kind of is kind of an unfettered um, winner-take-all. You know, the, the, the people who make the best product or, or whatever win. Twain cares about people too much to go there fully. And you're going to hear it more and more as we get towards the end of the book. 
You'll hear him talk about the hermits today, and and then you're you're going to hear about how the boss reacts to the hermits. And yes, you're supposed to be well impressed or amused, you know. However, you take the hermits, but today more so than other times, you should look at the boss's reaction and see, you know, his his kind of um, belief system, his his devout reliance upon um, his his in industrial spirit, his his belief that that you can make things better by making a profit off of them. Today, it should really start to feel uncomfortable, and it's going to continue to feel uncomfortable for a while. Doesn't mean you won't laugh, just means you're going to be uncomfortable. I was going to read you some quotes from Lucky, but you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to play you the audio. Let's see. We pick up where we left off with Sandy and the princesses, who, oddly enough, look like pigs. And, um, oh, there's one other thing to listen for. Uh, You will come across slaves again in this chapter. They're kind of omnipresent, no? There's obviously a reason for that. Uh, This particular time, you will come across the the uh, procession of slaves, and you need to remember that one for later. This one comes back. This this band of slaves comes back and uh, becomes part of the story again. So, I think that's everything. All right, I'm going to play the audio for you from... Eric Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 21. The Pilgrims. When I did get to bed at last, I was unspeakably tired. The stretching out and the relaxing of the long, tense muscles. How luxurious! How delicious! But that was as far as I could get. Sleep was out of the question for the present. The ripping and tearing and squealing of the nobility up and down the halls and corridors was pandemonium come again, and kept me broad awake. Being awake, my thoughts were busy, of course, and mainly they busied themselves with Sandy's curious delusion. Here she was, as sane a person as the kingdom could produce, and yet, from my point of view, she was acting like a crazy woman. My land, the power of training, of influence, of education. It can bring a body up to believe anything. I had to put myself in Sandy's place to realize that she was not a lunatic. Yes, and put her in mine to demonstrate how easy it is to seem a lunatic to a person who has not been taught as you have been taught. If I had told Sandy I had seen a wagon, uninfluenced by enchantment, spin along fifty miles an hour, had seen a man, unequipped with magic powers, get into a basket and soar out of sight among the clouds, and had listened, without any necromancer's help, to the conversation of a person who was several hundred miles away— Sandy would not merely have supposed me to be crazy, she would have thought she knew it. Everybody around her believed in enchantments. Nobody had any doubts. To doubt that a castle could be turned into a sty and its occupants into hogs would have been the same as my doubting among Connecticut people the actuality of the telephone and its wonders, and in both cases would be absolute proof of a diseased mind, an unsettled reason." Yes, Sandy was sane. That must be admitted. If I also would be sane, to Sandy, I must keep my superstitions about unenchanted and unmiraculous locomotives, balloons, and telephones to myself. 
Also, I believed that the world was not flat, and hadn't pillars under it to support it, nor a canopy over it to turn off a universe of water that occupied all space above. But as I was the only person in the kingdom afflicted with such impious and criminal opinions, I recognized that it would be good wisdom to keep quiet about this matter, too, if I did not wish to be suddenly shunned and forsaken by everybody as a madman. The next morning Sandy assembled the swine in the dining-room and gave them their breakfast, waiting upon them personally, and manifesting in every way the deep reverence which the natives of her island, ancient and modern, have always felt for rank, let its outward casket and the mental and moral contents be what they may. I could have eaten with the hogs, if I had had birth approaching my lofty official rank, but I hadn't, and so accepted the unavoidable slight, and made no complaint. Sandy and I had our breakfast at the second table. The family were not at home. I said, "'How many are in the family, Sandy, and where do they keep themselves?' "'Family?' "'Yes. Which family, good my lord?' "'Why, this family, your own family. Sooth to say, I understand you not. I, I have no family.' "'No family? Why, Sandy, isn't this your home?' "'Now, how indeed might that be? I have no home.' "'Well, then, uh, whose home is this?' "'Ah, would you well, I would tell you, and I knew myself.' "'Come, you don't even know these people? Then who invited us here?' "'None invited us. We but came, that is all.' "'Why, woman, this is a most extraordinary performance. The effrontery of it is beyond admiration. We blandly march into a man's house, and cram it full of the only really valuable nobility the sun has yet discovered in the earth, and then it turns out that we don't even know the man's name.' How did you ever venture to take this extravagant liberty? I supposed, of course, it was your home. What will the man say? What will he say? Forsooth, what can he say but give thanks? Thanks for what? Her face was filled with a puzzled surprise. Verily, thou troublest mine understanding with strange words. Do you dream that one of his estate is like to have the honor twice in his life to entertain company, such as we have brought to grace his house withal? Well, no, when you come to that. No, it's, it's an even bet that this is the first time he has had a treat like this. Then let him be thankful, and manifest the same by grateful speech and due humility. He were a dog else in the air and the ancestor of dogs. To my mind, the situation was uncomfortable. It might become more so. It might be a good idea to muster the hogs and move on. So I said, The day is wasting, Sandy. It is time to get the nobility together and be moving. Wherefore, fair sir and boss? We want to take them to their home, don't we? La, but list to him. They be of all the regions of the earth. Each must hie to her own home. Wend you, we might do all these journeys in one so brief life as he hath appointed that created life and thereto death, likewise with help of Adam, who by sin done through persuasion of his helpmeet, she being wrought upon the betrayed by the beguilements of the great enemy of man, that serpent hight Satan, aforetime consecrated and set apart unto that evil work by overmastering spite and envy begotten in his heart through fell ambitions that did blight and mildew a nature erst so white and pure, when so it hove with the shining multitudes its brethren born in glade and shade of that fair heaven, wherein all such as native be to that rich estate and— Great Scott! 
My lord? Well, you know we haven't got time for this sort of thing. Don't you see, we could distribute these people around the earth in less time than it is going to take you to explain that we can't. We mustn't talk now. We must act. You want to be careful. You mustn't let your mill get the start of you that way, at a time like this. To business now, and sharp's the word. Who is to take the aristocracy home? Even their friends. These will come for them from the far parts of the earth. This was lightning from a clear sky, for unexpectedness and the relief of it was like pardon to a prisoner. She would remain to deliver the goods, of course. Well then, Sandy, as our enterprise is handsomely and successfully ended, I will go home and report, and if ever another one— I also am ready. I will go with thee. This was recalling the pardon. How? How will you go with me? Why should you? Will I be traitor to my knight, dost think? That were dishonor— I may not part from thee until in nightly encounter in the field some overmatching champion shall fairly win and fairly wear me. I were to blame, and I thought that that might ever hap. Elected for the long term, I sighed to myself. I may as well make the best of it. So then I spoke up and said, All right, let us make a start. While she was gone to cry her farewells over the pork, I gave that whole peerage away to the servants and I asked them to take a duster and dust around a little where the nobilities had mainly lodged and promenaded, but they considered that that would be hardly worth while, and would moreover be a rather grave departure from custom, and therefore likely to make talk. A departure from custom, that settled it. It was a nation capable of committing any crime but that. The servants said they would follow the fashion, a fashion grown sacred through immemorial observance. They would scatter fresh rushes in all the rooms and halls, and then the evidence of the aristocratic visitation would be no longer visible. It was a kind of satire on nature. It was the scientific method, the geologic method. It deposited the history of the family in a stratified record, and the antiquary could dig through it and tell by the remains of each period what changes of diet the family had introduced successively for a hundred years." The first thing we struck that day was a procession of pilgrims. It was not going our way, but we joined it, nevertheless, for it was hourly being borne in upon me now that if I would govern this country wisely, I must be posted in the details of its life, and not at second hand, but by personal observation and scrutiny. This company of pilgrims resembled Chaucer's in this, that it had in it a sample of about all the upper occupations and professions the country could show, and a corresponding variety of costume. There were young men and old men, young women and old women, lively folk and grave folk. They rode upon mules and horses, and there was not a side-saddle in the party, for this specialty was to remain unknown in England for nine hundred years yet. It was a pleasant, friendly, sociable herd, pious, happy, merry, and full of unconscious coarseness and innocent indecencies. What they regarded as the merry tale went the continual round and caused no more embarrassment than it would have caused in the best English society twelve centuries later. Practical jokes worthy of the English wits of the first quarter of the far-off nineteenth century were sprung here and there and yonder along the line, and compelled the delightedest applause and sometimes when a bright remark was made at one end of the procession, and started on its travels toward the other, 
you could note its progress all the way by the sparkling spray of laughter it threw off from its bows as it plowed along, and also by the blushes of the mules in its wake. Sandy knew the goal and purpose of this pilgrimage, and she posted me. She said, They journey to the Valley of Holiness, for to be blessed of the godly hermits and drink of the miraculous waters and be cleansed from sin. Where is this watering place? It lieth a two-day journey hence by the borders of the land that height the Cuckoo Kingdom. Tell me about it. Is it a celebrated place? Oh, of truth, yes. There be none more so. Of old time there lived there an abbot and his monks. Belike were none in the world more holy than these, for they gave themselves to study of pious books, and spoke not the one to the other, or indeed to any, and ate decayed herbs, and not thereto, and slept hard, and prayed much, and washed never. Also they wore the same garment until it fell from their bodies through age and decay. Right so came they to be known of all the world by reason of these holy austerities, and visited by rich and poor and reverenced. Proceed. But always there was lack of water there, whereas upon a time the holy abbot prayed, and for answer a great stream of clear water burst forth by miracle in a desert place. Now were the fickle monks tempted of the fiend, and they wrought with their abbot unceasingly by beggings and beseechings that he would construct a bath. And when he was become a weary and might not resist more, he said, Have ye your will, then, and granted that they asked. Now mark thou what tis to forsake the ways of purity the which he loveth, and wanton with such as be worldly and an offence. These monks did enter into the bath, and come thence washed as white as snow, and lo, in that moment his sign appeared in miraculous rebuke, for his insulted waters ceased to flow, and utterly vanished away. They fared mildly, Sandy, considering how that kind of crime is regarded in this country. Belike, but it was their first sin, and they had been of perfect life for long, and differing in naught from the angels. Prayers, tears, torturings of the flesh, all was vain to beguile that water to flow again, even processions, even burnt offerings, even votive candles to the Virgin, did fail every each of them, and all in the land did marvel. How odd to find that even this industry has its financial panics, and at times sees its assignats and greenbacks languish to zero, and everything come to a standstill. Go on, Sandy. And so upon a time, after year and day, the good abbot made humble surrender and destroyed the bath. And behold, his anger was in that moment appeased, and the waters gushed richly forth again, and even unto this day they have not ceased to flow in that generous measure. Then I take it nobody has washed since. He that would assay it could have his halter free, yes, and swiftly would he need it, too. The community has prospered since? Even from that very day. The fame of the miracle went abroad into all lands. From every land came monks to join. They came even as the fishes come in shoals. And the monastery added building to building, and yet others to these, and so spread wide its arms and took them in. And nuns came also, and more again, and yet more, and built over against the monastery on the yon side of the vale, and added building to building, until mighty was that nunnery. And these were friendly unto those, and they joined their loving labors together, and together they built a fair and great foundling asylum midway of the valley between. You spoke of some hermits, Sandy. 
These have gathered there from the ends of the earth. A hermit striveth best where there be multitudes of pilgrims. Ye shall not find no hermit of no sort wanting. If any shall mention a hermit of a kind he thinketh new, and not to be found but in some far strange land, let him but scratch among the holes and caves and swamps that line that valley of holiness, and whatsoe'er be his breed, it skills not, he shall find a sample of it there. I closed up alongside of a burly fellow with a fat, good-humored face, proposing to make myself agreeable and pick up some further crumbs of fact. But I had hardly more than scraped acquaintance with him when he began eagerly and awkwardly to lead up in the immemorial way to that same old anecdote, the one Sir Dinadan told me, what time I got into trouble with Sir Sagamore, and was challenged of him on account of it. I excused myself, and dropped to the rear of the procession, sad at heart, willing to go hence from this troubled life, this veil of tears, this brief day of broken rest, of cloud and storm, of weary struggle and monotonous defeat, and yet shrinking from the change, as remembering how long eternity is, and how many have wended thither who know that anecdote. Early in the afternoon we overtook another procession of pilgrims, but in this one was no merriment, no jokes, no laughter, no playful ways, nor any happy giddiness, whether of youth or age. Yet both were here, both age and youth, gray old men and women, strong men and women of middle age, young husbands, young wives, little boys and girls, and three babies at the breast. Even the children were smileless. There was not a face among all these half a hundred people but was cast down, and bore that set expression of hopelessness which is bred of long and hard trials and old acquaintance with despair. They were slaves. Chains led from their fettered feet and their manacled hands to a sole-leather belt about their waists, and all except the children were also linked together in a file six feet apart by a single chain which led from collar to collar all down the line. They were on foot, and had tramped three hundred miles in eighteen days, upon the cheapest odds and ends of food, and stingy rations of that. They had slept in these chains every night, bundled together like swine. They had upon their bodies some poor rags, but they could not be said to be closed. Their irons had chafed the skin from their ankles, and made sores which were ulcerated and wormy. Their naked feet were torn, and none walked without a limp. Originally there had been a hundred of these unfortunates, but about a half had been sold on the trip. The trader in charge of them rode a horse and carried a whip with a short handle and a long heavy lash divided into several knotted tails at the end. With this whip he cut the shoulders of any that tottered from weariness and pain, and straightened them up. He did not speak. The whip conveyed his desire without that. None of these poor creatures looked up as we rode along by. They showed no consciousness of our presence, and they made no sound but one. That was the dull and awful clank of their chains from end to end of the long file, as forty-three burdened feet rose and fell in unison. The file moved in a cloud of its own making. All these faces were gray with a coating of dust. One has seen the like of this coating upon furniture in unoccupied houses, and has written his idle thought in it with his finger. I was reminded of this when I noticed the faces of some of those women, young mothers carrying babes that were near to death and freedom, 
how a something in their hearts was written in the dust upon their faces, plain to see, and, Lord, how plain to read, for it was the track of tears. One of these young mothers was but a girl, and it hurt me to the heart to read that writing, and reflect that it was come up out of the breast of such a child, a breast that ought not to know trouble yet, but only the gladness of the morning of life, and no doubt she reeled just then, giddy with fatigue, and down came the lash and flicked a flake of skin from her naked shoulder. It stung me as if I'd been hit instead. The master halted the file and jumped from his horse. He stormed and swore at this girl, and said she had made annoyance enough with her laziness, and as this was the last chance he should have, he would settle the account now. She dropped on her knees and put up her hands, and began to beg and cry and implore in a passion of terror— but the master gave no attention. He snatched the child from her, and then made the men-slaves who were chained before and behind her throw her on the ground and hold her there and expose her body. And then he laid on with his lash like a madman till her back was flayed, she shrieking and struggling the while piteously. One of the men who was holding her turned away his face, and for this humanity he was reviled and flogged. All our pilgrims looked on and commented on the expert way in which the whip was handled. They were too much hardened by lifelong everyday familiarity with slavery to notice that there was anything else in the exhibition that invited comment. This was what slavery could do, in the way of ossifying what one may call the superior lobe of human feeling, for these pilgrims were kind-hearted people, and they would not have allowed that man to treat a horse like that. I wanted to stop the whole thing and set the slaves free, but that would not do. I must not interfere too much and get myself a name for riding over the country's laws and the citizens' rights roughshod. If I lived and prospered, I would be the death of slavery, and that I was resolved upon. But I would try to fix it, so that when I became its executioner, it should be by command of the nation. Just here was the wayside shop of a smith— and now arrived a landed proprietor who had bought this girl a few miles back, deliverable here where her irons could be taken off. They were removed, then there was a squabble between the gentleman and the dealer as to which should pay the blacksmith. The moment the girl was delivered from her irons she flung herself, all tears and frantic sobbings, into the arms of the slave who had turned away his face when she was whipped. He strained her to his breath, and smothered her face and the child's with kisses, and washed them with the rain of his tears. I suspected. I inquired. Yes, I was right. It was husband and wife. They had to be torn apart by force. The girl had to be dragged away, and she struggled and fought and shrieked like one gone mad till a turn of the road hid her from sight, and even after that we could still make out the fading plaint of those receding shrieks and the husband and father, with his wife and child gone, never to be seen by him again in life? Well, the look of him one might not bear at all, and so I turned away. But I knew I should never get his picture out of my mind again, and there it is to this day, to wring my heart-strings whenever I think of it. We put up at the inn in a village just at nightfall, and when I rose next morning and looked abroad— I was where, where a knight came riding in the golden glory of the new day, and recognized him for knight of mine, Sir Osana Lacure Hardy. He was in the gentleman's furnishing line, and his missionarying specialty was plug hats. He was clothed all in steel, in the beautifulest armor of the time, up to where his helmet ought to have been. But he hadn't any helmet, 
He wore a shiny stovepipe hat, and was ridiculous a spectacle as one might want to see. It was another of my superstitious schemes for extinguishing knighthood by making it grotesque and absurd. Sir Osana's saddle was hung about with leather hat-boxes, and every time he overcame a wandering knight, he swore him into my service and fitted him with a plug and made him wear it. I dressed and ran down to welcome Sir Osana and get his news. How is trade? I asked. Ye will note that I have but these four left. Yet were they sixteen when as I got me from Camelot. Why, you have certainly done nobly, Sir Osana. Where have you been foraging of late? I am but now come from the Valley of Holiness, please you, sir. I am pointed for that place myself. Is there anything stirring in the monkery more than common? By the mass ye may not question it. Give him good feed, boy, and stint it not, and thou valuest thy crown. So get ye lightly to the stable, and do even as I bid. Sir, it is parlous news I bring, and be these pilgrims? Then ye may not do better, good folk, than gather, and hear the tale I have to tell. Sith it concerneth you, for as much as ye go to find that ye will not find, and seek that ye will seek in vain, my life being hostage for my word, and my word and message being these, namely, that a hap has happened, whereof the like has not been seen no more but once this two hundred years, which was the first and last time that that said misfortune shrake the holy valley in that form by commandment of the Most High, whereto by reasons just and causes thereunto contributing, wherein the matter the miraculous font hath ceased to flow. This shout burst from twenty pilgrim mouths at once. Ye say well, good people, I was verging to it, even when ye spake. Has somebody been washing again? Nay, it is suspected, but none believe it. It is thought to be some other sin, but none wit what. How are they feeling about the calamity? None may describe it in words. The fount is these nine days dry. The prayers that did begin then, and the lamentations in sackcloth and ashes, and the holy processions, none of these have ceased, nor night nor day. And so the monks and the nuns and the foundlings be all exhausted, and do hang up prayers writ upon parchment, sith that no strength is left in man to lift up voice. And at last they sent for thee, Sir Boss, to try magic and enchantment. And if you could not come, then was the messenger to fetch Merlin, and he is there these three days now, and saith he will fetch that water, though he burst the globe, and wreck its kingdoms to accomplish it. And right bravely doth he work his magic, and call upon his hellions to hie them hither and help. But not a whiff of moisture hath he started yet, even so much as might qualify as mist upon a copper mirror, and ye count not the barrel of sweat he sweateth betwixt sun and sun over the dire labors of his task. And if ye— Breakfast was ready. As soon as it was over, I showed to Sir Osana these words which I had written on the inside of his hat. Chemical Department Laboratory Extension, Section G, PXXP. Send two of first size, two of number three, and six of number four, together with the proper complementary details, and two of my trained assistants. And I said, Now get you to Camelot as fast as you can fly, brave knight, and show the writing to Clarence, and tell him to have these required matters in the Valley of Holiness with all possible dispatch. I will well, Sir Boss, and he was off. End of chapter 21. 
So, just breaking in for a moment, obviously the first group of pilgrims is uh, take on Chaucer and juxtaposed with the second group of pilgrims on purpose. And in case it was bugging you, I just wanted to let you know, you'll never find out whose house that was with the pigs. <laughs> All right, here we go with the next chapter. Chapter 22, The Holy Fountain. The pilgrims were human beings. Otherwise, they would have acted differently. They had come a long and difficult journey, and now when the journey was nearly finished, they learned that the main thing they had come for had ceased to exist. They didn't do as horses or cats or angleworms would probably have done, turn back and get at something profitable. No. Anxious as they had before been to see the miraculous fountain, they were as much as forty times as anxious now to see the place where it had used to be. There is no accounting for human beings. We made good time, and a couple of hours before sunset we stood upon the high confines of the Valley of Holiness, and our eyes swept it from end to end and noted its features, that is, its large features. These were the three masses of buildings. They were distant and isolated temporalities, shrunken to toy constructions in the lonely waste of what seemed a desert, and was. Such a scene is always mournful. It is so impressively still, and looks so steeped in death. But there was a sound here which interrupted the stillness only to add to its mournfulness. This was the faint, far sound of tolling bells which floated fitfully to us on the passing breeze, and so faintly, so softly, that we hardly knew whether we heard it with our ears or with our spirits. We reached the monastery before dark, and there the males were given lodging, but the women were sent over to the nunnery. The bells were close at hand now, and their solemn booming smote upon the ear like a message of doom. A superstitious despair possessed the heart of every monk and published itself in his ghastly face. Everywhere these black-robed, soft-sandaled, tallow-visaged specters appeared, flitted about and disappeared, noiseless as the creatures of a troubled dream, and as uncanny. The old abbot's joy to see me was pathetic, even to tears, but he did the shedding himself. He said, Delay not, son, but get to thy saving work, and we bring not the water back again, and soon we are ruined, and the good work of two hundred years must end, and see thou do it with enchantments that be holy, for the church will not endure that work in her cause be done by devil's magic. When I work, father, be sure there will be no devil's work connected with it, I shall use no arts that come of the devil, and no elements not created by the hand of God. But is Merlin working strictly on pious lines? Ah, he said he would, my son, he said he would, and took oath to make his promise good. Well, in that case let him proceed. But surely you will not sit idle by, but help. I will not answer to mix methods, father, neither would it be professional courtesy. Two of a trade must not underbid each other. We might as well cut rates and be done with it. It would arrive at that in the end. Merlin has the contract. No other magician can touch it till he throws it up. But I will take it from him. It is a terrible emergency, and the act is thereby justified. And if it were not so, who will give law to the church? The church giveth law to all, and what she wills to do, that she may do hurt whom it may.' 
I will take it from him. You shall begin upon the moment. It may not be, father. No doubt, as you say, where power is supreme, one can do as one likes and suffer no injury. But we poor magicians are not so situated. Merlin is a very good magician, in a small way, and has quite a neat provincial reputation. He is struggling along, doing the best he can, and it would not be etiquette for me to take his job until he himself abandons it. The abbot's face lighted. Ah, that is simple. There are ways to persuade him to abandon it. No, no, father, it skills not, as these people say. If he were persuaded against his will, he would load that well with a malicious enchantment which would balk me until I found out its secret. It might take a month. I could set up a little enchantment of mine, which I call the telephone, and he could not find out its secret in a hundred years. Yes, you perceive, he might block me for a month. Would you like to risk a month in a dry time like this? A month! The mere thought of it maketh me to shudder. Have it thy way, my son, but my heart is heavy with this disappointment. Leave me, and let me wear my spirit with weariness and waiting, even as I have done these ten long days, counterfeiting thus the thing that is called rest, the prone body making outward sign of repose where inwardly is none. Of course, it would have been best, all round, for Merlin to waive etiquette and quit, and call it half a day, since he would never be able to start that water, for he was a true magician of the time, which is to say, the big miracles, the ones that gave him his reputation, always had the luck to be performed when nobody but Merlin was present. He couldn't start this well with all this crowd around to see— a crowd was as bad for a magician's miracle in that day as it was for a spiritualist's miracle in mine. There was sure to be some skeptic on hand to turn up the gas at the crucial moment and spoil everything. But I did not want Merlin to retire from the job until I was ready to take hold of it effectively myself, and I could not do that until I got my things from Camelot, and that would take two or three days. My presence gave the monks hope, and cheered them up a good deal insomuch that they ate a square meal that night for the first time in ten days. As soon as their stomachs had been properly reinforced with food, their spirits began to rise fast. When the mead began to go around, they rose faster. By the time everybody was half seas over, the holy community was in good shape to make a night of it. So we stayed by the board and put it through on that line. Matters got to be very jolly." Good old questionable stories were told that made the tears run down and cavernous mouths stand wide and the round bellies shake with laughter, and questionable songs were bellowed out in a mighty chorus that drowned the boom of the tolling bells. At last I ventured a story myself, and vast was the success of it, not right off, of course, for the native of those islands does not as a rule dissolve upon the early applications of a humorous thing, but the fifth time I told it, they began to crack in places. The eighth time I told it, they began to crumble. At the twelfth repetition, they fell apart in chunks, and at the fifteenth, they disintegrated, and I got a broom and swept them up. This language is uh, figurative. Uh, those islanders, well, they are slow pay at first, in the matter of return for your investment of effort, but in the end, they make the pay of all other nations poor and small by contrast. I was at the well next day betimes. Merlin was there enchanting away like a beaver, but not raising the moisture. 
He was not in a pleasant humor, and every time I hinted that perhaps this contract was a shade too hefty for a novice, he unlimbered his tongue and cursed like a bishop—French bishop of the Regency days, I mean. Matters were about as I expected to find them. The fountain was an ordinary well. It had been dug in the ordinary way, and stoned up in the ordinary way. There was no miracle about it. Even the lie that had created its reputation was not miraculous. I could have told it myself, with one hand tied behind me. The well was in a dark chamber, which stood in the center of a cut-stone chapel, whose walls were hung with pious pictures of a workmanship that would have made a chromo feel good, pictures historically commemorative of curative miracles which had been achieved by the waters when nobody was looking. That is, nobody but angels. They are always on deck when there is a miracle to the fore, so as to get put in the picture, perhaps. Angels are as fond of that as a fire company. Look at the old masters. The well chamber was dimly lighted by lamps. The water was drawn with a windlass and chain by monks, and poured into troughs which delivered it into stone reservoirs outside in the chapel—when there was water to draw, I mean—and none but monks could enter the well chamber. I entered it, for I had temporary authority to do so, by courtesy of my professional brother and subordinate. But he hadn't entered it himself. He did everything by incantation. He never worked his intellect. If he had stepped in there and used his eyes instead of his disordered mind, he could have cured the well by natural means, and then turned it into a miracle in the customary way. But no, he was an old numbskull, a magician who believed in his own magic, and no magician can thrive who is handicapped with a superstition like that. I had an idea that the well had sprung a leak, that some of the wall-stones near the bottom had fallen and exposed fissures that allowed the water to escape. I measured the chain, ninety-eight feet, then I called in a couple of monks, locked the door, took a candle, and made them lower me in the bucket. When the chain was all paid out, the candle confirmed my suspicion. A considerable section of the wall was gone, exposing a good big fissure. I almost regretted that my theory about the well's trouble was correct, because I had another one that had a showy point or two about it for a miracle. I remembered that in America, many centuries later, when an oil well ceased to flow, they used to blast it out with a dynamite torpedo. If I should find this well dry and no explanation of it, I could astonish these people most nobly by having a person of no especial value drop a dynamite bomb into it. It was my idea to appoint Merlin. However, it was plain that there was no occasion for the bomb. One cannot have everything the way he would like it. A man has no business to be depressed by a disappointment, anyway. He ought to make up his mind to get even. That is what I did. I said to myself, I am in no hurry. I can wait. That bomb will come good yet. And it did, too. When I was above ground again, I turned out the monks and let down a fish line. The well was a hundred and fifty feet deep, and there was forty-one feet of water in it. I called in a monk and asked, How deep is the well? That, sir, I wit not, having never been told. How does the water usually stand in it? Near to the top these two centuries, as the testimony goeth, brought down to us through our predecessors. It was true, as to recent times at least, for there was witness to it, and better witness than a monk. Only about twenty or thirty feet of the chain showed wear and use. The rest of it was unworn and rusty. What had happened when the well gave out that other time? Without doubt some practical person had come along and mended the leak, and then had come up and told the abbot he had discovered by divination that if the sinful bath were destroyed the well would flow again. 
The leak had befallen again now, and these children would have prayed and processioned and tolled their bells for a heavenly succor till they all dried up and blew away, and no innocent of them all would ever have thought to drop a fish line into the well or go down in it and find out what was really the matter. Old habit of mind is one of the toughest things to get away from in the world. It transmits itself like physical form and feature, and for a man in those days to have had an idea that his ancestors hadn't had would have brought him under suspicion of being illegitimate. I said to the monk, It is a difficult miracle to restore water in a dry well, but we will try if my brother Merlin fails. Brother Merlin is a very passable artist, but only in the parlor magic line, and he may not succeed, in fact, is not likely to succeed, but that should be nothing to his discredit. The man that can do this kind of miracle knows enough to keep hotel. Hotel? I mind not to have heard of hotel. It's what you call hostel. The man that can do this miracle can keep hostel. I can do this miracle. I shall do this miracle. Yet I do not try to conceal from you that it is a miracle to tax the occult powers to the last strain. None knoweth that truth better than the Brotherhood, indeed, for it is of record that aforetime it was parlous difficult and took a year. Nathless, God send you good success, and to that end will we pray. As a matter of business, it was a good idea to get the notion around that the thing was difficult. Many a small thing has been made large by the right kind of advertising. That monk was filled up with the difficulty of this enterprise. He would fill up the others. In two days the solicitude would be booming. On my way home at noon I met Sandy. She had been sampling the hermits. I said, I would like to do that myself. This is Wednesday. Is there a matinee? A which, please you, sir? Matinee. Do they keep open afternoons? Who? The hermits, of course. Keep open? Yes, uh, keep open. I isn't that plain enough? Uh, do they knock off at noon? Knock off? Knock off? Yes, knock off. What is the matter with knock off? I never saw such a dunderhead. Can't you understand anything at all? In plain terms, do they shut up shop, draw the game, bank the fires? Shut up shop, draw? There, never mind, let it go. You make me tired. You can't seem to understand the simplest thing. I would, I might please thee, sir, and it is to me dole and sorrow that I fail, albeit sith I am but a simple damsel, and taught of none, being from the cradle unbaptized in those deep waters of learning that do anoint with of sovereignty him that partaketh of that most noble sacrament, investing him with reverend state to the mental eye of the humble mortal who, by bar and lack of that great consecration, seeth in his own unlearned estate but a symbol of that other sort of lack and loss, which men do publish to the pitying eye with sackcloth trappings whereon the ashes of grief do lie bepowdered and bestrewn, and so when such shall in the darkness of his mind encounter these golden phrases of high mystery, these shut-up shops, and draw the game, the, and bank the fires, it is but by the grace of God that he burst not for envy of the mind that can beget and tongue that can deliver so great and mellow-sounding miracles of speech. And if there do ensue confusion in that humbler mind, and failure to divine the meanings of these wonders, then if so be this miscomprehension is not vain but sooth and true, 
wit ye well it is the very substance of worshipful dear homage and may not lightly be misprized nor had been and ye had noted this complexion of mood and mind and understood that that i would i could not and that i could not i might not nor yet nor might nor could nor might not nor could not might be by advantage turned to the desired would and so i pray you mercy of my fault and that ye will of your kindness and your charity forgive it good my master and most dear lord i couldn't make it all out that is the details but i got the general idea and enough of it too to be ashamed it was not fair to spring those nineteenth-century technicalities upon the untutored infant of the sixth and then rail at her because she couldn't get their drift and when she was making the honest best drive at it she could too and no fault of hers that she couldn't fetch the home plate and so i apologized then we meandered pleasantly away toward the hermit holes in sociable converse together and better friends than ever i was gradually coming to have a mysterious and shuddery reverence for this girl nowadays whenever she pulled out from the station and got her train fairly started on one of those horizonless transcontinental sentences of hers it was borne in upon me that i was standing in the awful presence of the mother of the german language i was so impressed with this that sometimes when she began to empty one of these sentences on me i unconsciously took the very attitude of reverence and stood uncovered and if words had been water i had been drowned sure she had exactly the german way whatever was in her mind to be delivered whether a mere remark or a sermon or a cyclopedia or the history of a war she would get it into a single sentence or die whenever the literary german dives into a sentence that is the last you are going to see of him till he emerges on the other side of his atlantic with his verb in his mouth we drifted from hermit to hermit all the afternoon it was a most strange menagerie the chief emulation among them seemed to be to see which could manage to be the uncleanest and most prosperous with vermin their manner and attitudes were the last expression of complacent self-righteousness it was one anchorite's pride to lie naked in the mud and let the insects bite him and blister him unmolested it was another's to lean against a rock all day long conspicuous to the admiration of the throng of pilgrims and pray it was another's to go naked and crawl around on all fours it was another's to drag about with him year in and year out eighty pounds of iron it was another's to never lie down when he slept but to stand among the thorn bushes and snore when there were pilgrims around to look a woman who had the white hair of age and no other apparel was black from crown to heel with forty-seven years of holy abstinence from water groups of gazing pilgrims stood around all and every of these strange objects lost in reverent wonder and envious of the fleckless sanctity which these pious austerities had won for them from an exacting heaven by and by we went to see one of the supremely great ones he was a mighty celebrity his fame had penetrated all christendom the noble and the renowned journeyed from the remotest lands on the globe to pay him reverence his stand was in the center of the widest part of the valley and it took all that space to hold his crowds his stand was a pillar sixty feet high with a broad platform on top of it he was now doing what he had been doing every day for twenty years up there bowing his body ceaselessly and rapidly almost to his feet it was his way of praying 
I timed him with a stopwatch, and he made 1,244 revolutions in 24 minutes and 46 seconds. It seemed a pity to have all this power going to waste. It was one of the most useful motions in mechanics, the pedal movement. So I made a note in my memorandum book, proposing some day to apply a system of elastic cords to him and run a sewing machine with it. I afterward carried out that scheme and got five years' good service out of him, in which time he turned out upward of 18,000 first-rate tow-linen shirts, which was ten a day. I worked him Sundays and all. He was going Sundays, the same as weekdays, and it was no use to waste the power. These shirts cost me nothing, but just the mere trifle for the materials. I furnished those myself. It would not have been right to make him do that. And they sold like smoke to pilgrims at a dollar and a half apiece, which was the price of fifty cows, or a blooded racehorse in Arthurdom. They were regarded as a perfect protection against sin, and advertised as such by my knights everywhere, with the paint-pot and stencil-plate, insomuch that there was not a cliff or boulder or a dead wall in England, but you could read on it, at a mile distance, by the only genuine St. Stylite, patronized by the nobility, patent applied for. There was more money in the business than one knew what to do with. As it extended, I brought out a line of goods suitable for kings, and a knobby thing for duchesses and that sort, with ruffles down the forehatch, and the running gear clued up with a feather stitch to the leeward, and then hauled aft with a backstay, and triced up with a half-turn in the standing rigging forward of the weather-gaskets. Yes, it was a daisy. But about that time I noticed that the motive power had taken to standing on one leg, and I found that there was something the matter with the other one. So I stocked the business and unloaded, taking Sir Bors de Ganis into camp financially along with certain of his friends, for the work stopped within a year, and the good saint got him to his rest. But he had earned it. I can say that for him. When I saw him that first time, however, his personal condition will not quite bear description here. You can read it in the Lives of the Saints. Note. All the details concerning the hermits in this chapter are from Lecky, but greatly modified. This book, not being a history but only a tale, the majority of the historian's frank details were too strong for reproduction in it. Editor. Well, I haven't run the crack about German past my brother-in-law yet, because he's in the Dominican Republic right now, but uh, I know that Twain had a thing about German. Um, he had a, a short piece, The Awful German Language, I think, which I hope doesn't offend any of our listeners in Germany. Um, I, and you're going to hear him actually using some German uh, for humorous effect uh, in the next, I think, yes, in the next uh, the next episode. Uh, and, and a thing about Merlin, you know, uh, just because he's an equal opportunity inventor, um, I think Twain, Twain goes after Merlin because Merlin is an easy target. I certainly grew up loving the Merlin of the Crystal Cave books and uh, the Once and Future King and you know, all of that, not just because of the, the magic, but because he seemed wise and he seemed thoughtful and, and all of that kind of good stuff. I think Twain looks at him as a different kind of superstition from religious superstition, and so he's going to attack anytime he sees superstition. I think that's it for the episode. 
I hope you have had a good week. I hope you have a good next week. And you will have one more podcast before I leave for the trip. God willing, and the creeks don't rise. And I'm going to try and have an episode just kind of spontaneously upload while I am gone so that you will have, uh, instead of two weeks of radio silence, only about one. I'll try and put it up in the middle of the trip. And, um, and there it is. I hope you have a great time. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support CraftLit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit and Knit Circus online magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the summer issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.